So let's pray together before we begin. Holy Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study together. And we pray for your spirit to guide us and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, I should tell you that I put together 28 studies. And I shared with you the other day that if you take the first two chapters of the Bible, and you take the last two chapters of the Bible, they are uh, mirroring each other in that they give us a perfect beginning, perfect home, perfect face-to-face -face communion with God, uh, perfect uh, diet, perfect human relationship. Everything is perfect. There's no crying, no death, no, no suffering, no pain, etc. If you go to the last two chapters, the, the thing, same thing is true. There is a perfect world, perfect God with his people, face-to-face -face communion again. Uh, there's a perfect home, uh, perfect food. Everything is perfect again. So basically, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 are those two chapters or four chapters that tell you where we were to begin with and where God intends for you to end up at. Okay? Now, because that is the case, then every doctrine that you have in the Scriptures should then be just a piece of a puzzle that fills the whole picture. If that piece of the puzzle doesn't match, there's something wrong with the teaching, not with the frame. So you have to have a framework. A what? Framework. A framework. And once you have a framework, then you put in your pieces and they must match one with the other. If they do not, there's something wrong with that teaching. And so I have put together all of these teachings, and by the way, I don't, don't ask me for them because I'm not going to give them to you. Uh, the reason for that is that I'm not finished with them. Uh, ultimately, when I get them finished, uh, you'll see the recording where I will walk the person through. They want to put it on the television, they can. Or you will have the PowerPoint presentations where you can give the study yourself. Plus, they'll have the, uh, what we call the hard copy, where they have it on paper, they see the, the whole pro program, and then they should be able to teach the program themselves, okay? So, uh, if you notice, each, each uh, study, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is being traced from Eden to Eden. Uh, so, what I'd like to do with you is first cover the subject that right now is at issue, and that is the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to trace the study of the Holy Spirit from the beginning to the new beginning. Is that okay? She should be able to trace it throughout the Bible. So the, the Bible then is to help you to know how to get from A to Z. All right? It is God's counsel to enable you to figure out how to avoid the pitfalls and the booby traps, and how to get on the right path and stay on that path. So, having said that then, in the beginning, as I said, uh, you have the Holy Spirit is mentioned in creation. If you notice in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, it says the Spirit of the Lord, what, what did he do? Hovered over the face of the waters. So, we know that the Holy Spirit is mentioned there. We also know that in Revelation 22, he is also mentioned. If he is mentioned in Genesis, likewise he should be mentioned in Revelation. And in this particular verse, it says, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that hear 
Shechem. So if you're looking in your scriptures, your Bibles, you can turn to it. Uh, but I'm going fast, so you need to know your Bibles a little bit in order to keep up with me. Uh, but at least if you didn't hear the text, you can see it at the screen and then you can find it uh, in due time. All right? Revelation 22, 17, the Spirit of the Bride say, Come, let them that hear say, Come. So who's making the invitation? The bride. Who is the bride? The church. And who's the Spirit? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. But notice, if the church, if the bride is a real literal church, then the Spirit must be a literal Spirit. If the church is making the invitation and the Spirit are making the invitation, that means then that these two entities are inviting anyone who will listen to respond to the voice of God. Okay? Now, uh, does this Holy Spirit appear in the Old Testament? Well, the Holy Spirit is mentioned many times in the Old Testament, but most of the time people don't realize it. And I should also tell you this, that all, all the gifts that you find in the New Testament, given by the Spirit, you will find in the Old Testament. Okay? For example, the gift of tongues. When was the gift of tongues first given? What part of the Bible? The first time that the gift of tongues was given? The Tower of Babel. See? Most of you would say Acts. Correct? But, uh, but you know that the tongues was given supernaturally by God to the people to confuse them so that they would not be able to stay in the same place. Okay? So you'll find that all those gifts are actually in the Old Testament. The only, uh, it's interesting that there are gifts in the Old Testament that are not given in the New Testament. For example, the gift of strength that was given to Samson, you don't find it repeated in the New Testament. Okay. So, anyway, there's a lot that you can compare. But let's look, go through the, the Old Testament. Uh, the Bible says that the Spirit is present in the days of Noah. When? In the days of Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 to 20 is one of those texts that's misunderstood. So, I want you to quickly go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 to 20. Because a lot of people throw that at you to tell you that Jesus went down to hell. Went down to where? Hell. To hell. But if you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, you'll discover that what Peter is not saying that Jesus went down to hell, but rather that something is taking place. Uh, anybody have it? 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want you to, to note what it says. Here... Peter was writing about Jesus suffering. You remember that? And then it, it says something very interesting. Uh, let's look at it. Are you there? Okay. Notice it says, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient. Now, notice that most people stop with that verse 19. It says then that Jesus went down to where? He went down to preach to the spirits in prison. And they say that that means that Jesus went down to, to hell to preach to the people who were down in hell. Okay? All right? However, uh, the problem is that the power of suggestion is very strong. And if you don't know any better, you will accept that particular interpretation. 
What's the power suggestion? Do you know? Do you know what the power suggestion is? All right, let me demonstrate it to you. Yeah, take your hand, lift up your hand. How many of you remember how to rub your chin? You want to rub your chin? Rub your chin with me. Your chin. Your chin, chin, chin. Why are you rubbing your cheek? Okay. So, the power suggestion. What is it? And I saw some of you go like this. And so, what happens is that somebody says, this is what the text says, and you read it and say, sure enough, that's what it says. But you have to study things rather than just allow just a superficial impression. So let's look at it, all right? I want you to notice, let me go back to it. Uh, I want you to notice the, uh, uh, the text there, First Peter, okay? Notice how it, it, it reads. It says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, verse 18, correct? But quickened by what? By the Spirit. And what's the next word? By which? What does that mean? This is the means. All right. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. When was his preaching done? which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. So when was the preaching done? In the days of Noah. By what means? By the Spirit. So does it mean then that Jesus himself went down to hell to preach of spirits? No. And the reason why it uses the term spirits in prison is because in Isaiah 61, when Jesus quoted and they almost threw him over a bank because he, he said that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. Uh, it says that he came to deliver the people out of prison. What was he meaning? What does he mean? He meant sinners. He meant what? Sinners. Anybody who's a slave to prison, uh, to, uh, to sin, is considered a prisoner. Considered what? Prisoner. That's why David... Uh, ask the Lord, if you look at uh, Psalms 142, verse 7, Psalms 142, verse 7, it says, deliver my soul out of prison. What does that mean? Was David dead? It was his soul ahead of him down in prison before he died? No. David is saying, deliver who? Deliver me out of, out of sin. It's basically, so sin then is considered to be being in prison. That's why Jesus came to open the sight of the blind. Yes, and while he healed some people physically, what he was actually talking about, opening the spiritualized side so people could see, okay? Now, so the Spirit of God then is present when? In the days of Noah. Is that true? Uh, and, and I could use another text, which I didn't use here, in the book of Jude, verse 14. It says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, which makes him a what? A prophet. And were prophets people who came up with their own abilities, or was that God-inspired? God-inspired. So the Spirit was working upon who? Enoch and predicted a prophesied through Enoch. Okay, now there's some some other text. We find Joseph in Genesis 41 verse 38 uh, that the Pharaoh says that the spirit of the gods is upon him. 
In other words, he recognized that Joseph had a supernatural uh, gift of interpreting dreams and giving counsel, and that's why he made him the second in Pharaoh. Okay? So we know then it says there in, in Genesis 41, verse 38, that the Spirit is upon Joseph. Uh, we also know that the Spirit of the Lord came upon the 70 elders. How many? 70 elders. Uh, when Moses was uh, guided by the Spirit to do what he was doing, uh, the time came when he was so burdened with all the responsibility of uh, Israel that he was given counsel. And then God said to Moses, get together the 70 elders and bring them to me. And when the 70 elders came to Moses uh, and Moses brought them to the Lord, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon the 70 elders. And it says that they prophesied. They what? Prophesied. They prophesied. So we're seeing then a consistency of what? A consistency, okay? The same thing in uh, Numbers. Uh, Moses was filled with the Spirit of God. The elders were filled with the Spirit of God. And then you find that several instances in the book of Judges after the Israelites that mentions the Holy Spirit in his work. Let's look at some of these Judges. And you'll see then that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in several times uh, concerning uh, what he is doing in the book of Judges. Chapter 3 and verse 10. Notice chapter 3 and verse 10. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. Do you see that? Mm -hmm. Chapter 6. Of course, there's a, a prophetess named Deborah, which is in chapter 4. She was also led by the Spirit of the Lord. But in chapter 6, verse 34, chapter 6, verse 34, notice it says then, are you there? But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and Abiezer was gathered after him. Or Abiezer. Um, then Judges 11, verse 29, we find another reference to the Spirit of God. Judges 11, verse 29, and uh, there you see then it said, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed over Mizpeth of Gilead, and from Mizpeth of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. So the Spirit of God came upon Jephthah. Now I know some of you have read this story, and I felt terrible that Jephthah did what he did to his daughter. How many of you remember that story? Okay, how many of you felt bad about it? All right. Uh, and I noticed a Sabbath school lesson of, a while back uh, misstated. What did I say? Misstated. Because what happened with, with, this, with this situation is not that, that Jephthah sacrifices his daughter. Okay? The wording there, if you notice the wording there in verse 31... Uh, in, if you have a marginal reference, you'll see that it, uh, rather than and, it should be or. You see that? And it says, I will offer it up for a burnt offering. See that? Yes. And it says, I, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's. And rather than and, it should be or I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So it should be for the Lord or offer up for a burnt offering. Okay? Now, uh, so that you know, the, the uh, Levites were offered up as an offering unto the Lord. What? 
offer it up as an offering unto the Lord. How do I know that? Uh, Numbers chapter 8 and verse 13. Numbers chapter 8 and verse 13. You will see then that when it comes to the Levites, they likewise. Uh, notice uh, verse 13. And thou shalt set the Levites before Aaron and before his sons and offer them up for and what? For an offering unto the Lord. So what does that mean? That uh, Moses and Aaron took his sons and uh, put them up on an altar and killed them? Now what does it mean? It means that they were dedicated to the Lord for life. They were what? Dedicated to the Lord for life. That's why when a person chooses and accepts a calling to the ministry, it is not a calling to a career. It is a calling to a call. Amen. To what? A to a call. And because it is sacred, no one should try to switch from a call to a career. Amen. Commission is a career. Call is a calling. Did you hear what I said? Amen. Commissioning is a career. Calling is a call. All right? So people have been called, and when they're called, they're offered out to the Lord. That doesn't mean that they're put on the altar and killed. It means that they're committed to the service of, of God for life. And so this girl, when her father came back and God had given her, his, her dad deliverance, she was willing to be committed to the service of God for life. That's why it says that the girls be well have virginity. But it also says that they came to visit her every year. They came to what? Visit her every year. Did you know that? that? Now you know the rest of the story. Where is that uh, visit her every year? Hmm? Where is that visit her every year? It's right there in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in Judges. If you look at Judges then, chapter 11, you will see it's just that the, the King James doesn't seem to be as clear as it should be, uh, but it says, uh, verse 37, And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go up and down upon the mountains and be one my virginity, and I, I and my fellows. And he said, go, and he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. It came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, and she knew no man. What does that mean? She never got married. Okay? And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament, and if you, uh, if you see the word lament, and if you have a marginal reference, it says to talk with. To what? To talk with. So the daughters of Israel went yearly to talk with the daughter of Jephthah, the Gilead, four days in a year. Okay? Now you know the rest of the story. Now you know why I wrote the book, Bothersome and Disturbing Bible Passages. Because there are a lot of passages in the Bible that can be bothersome okay. and disturbing. Okay. So let me continue then. Uh, Samson, of course, you know, was filled with the Spirit of God, correct? And in the Spirit of God, that gave Samson that great strength. That's Judges chapter 14, verse 6 and verse 19. Okay? So we know that King Saul 
was filled with the Spirit. Uh, let's turn to that, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 6. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 6. Notice what was told to Saul. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shall be turned into another man. You see that? Okay. Now, uh, when Saul left the presence of Samuel, verse 9, and it was that when he turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. So here is clear evidence that the Spirit of God is the one that converts the person. You see that? God gave him what? Another heart. So Saul then experienced a conversion. Experienced what? A conversion. Unfortunately, he didn't maintain his relationship with the Lord. So here you have the Spirit of God given wisdom, the Spirit of God given strength, the Spirit of God given guidance, the Spirit of God given victory, the Spirit of God changing the heart. You can see then that the Spirit of God is pretty active in the Old Testament. What do you say? But most of the time we don't realize that. We think that the Spirit is very active in the New Testament. And while that is true, it doesn't negate the fact that he is pretty active in the New Testament. David, for example, in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13, 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13, look at it and notice what it says. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So who came upon David? The Spirit of the Lord, okay? Second uh, Samuel 23, Samuel, in fact, in Psalms 51, David is making a prayer and a plea, asking God not to take the Holy Spirit from him. Not to what? Not to take the Holy Spirit from him. So he says, uh, wash me, cleanse me, right? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, okay? David understood the importance of the Spirit of God working in the human heart. But listen, uh, Elijah and Elisha, both prophets who were filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can read that in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 15. In fact, Elisha was the one who begged for a double portion of the Spirit. Do you remember that? So when uh, Elijah was going to take his flight, Elisha said, I uh, ask that you'll give me a double portion of thy spirit. And so it was true. When Elijah was departed from Elisha, that the mantle fell down, and that was a clear evidence. And when he sat with the mantle and struck Jordan, he said, where is the God of Israel? He was not questioning. He was bringing attention to the fact that now he had a, the gift that God had promised, and the f evidence was the splitting of the Jordan. He walked over the right ground. Okay. All right, let's continue on. Isaiah chapter 20, 59 and verse 21. Isaiah, uh, in this particular instance, you, Acts 28 verse 25 is a commentary on Isaiah 59. But I, I want you to notice what Isaiah 59 says in order for us to be clear what the Bible is, is saying. Isaiah 59 and verse 21, and here's what it says. As for me, 
This is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. So the promise was to Isaiah that God would fill him with the Spirit, and there's no question that Isaiah then became a prophet, and uh, because he was a prophet, we have his writings. All right? And so all the writings that you have in your, in your hand in the Bible were inspired by the Spirit of God. But the Scripture says that all, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so holy men uh, spake that they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Okay, so we see then that from Genesis all the way through Exodus, Apart from, and then through Isaiah and the minor prophets, which you find in, finally in the book of Malachi, all were inspired. So Malachi was written about 400 years before Christ, which means then that from this point here, okay, right here, all the way to the cross is 4,000 years. And the only difference is that Malachi was written about 400 years before Christ. So... It's 3,600 years of evidence that the Spirit of God was actively involved working within the world uh, even in the day of Noah when people were rebellious. And that's why it says, my spirit shall not always strive with flesh. So it is clear evidence from the scriptures then that the Spirit of God has been working throughout the Old Testament. Is that clear? Yes? All right. Then... Uh, Isaiah 11, Ezekiel, etc., all of these texts show the, 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 uh, the truth of the matter that the Spirit of God was working, leading, guiding, and urging. But you have to remember this, that one thing that God did that he intended to do was to make you and me free moral agents. And so while the Lord will twist the tree and do things to the tree, cause it to grow or to wither, when it comes to humankind, God allows us to make our own choices, which I'm grateful for. What do you say? Amen. All right. Sometimes we wish that he wasn't that kind. Sometimes we wish he'd just take us and whip us into shape, right? <laughs> but the process would be very painful that way. So God in his kindness lets us to cooperate with him. All right, so the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, as we already quoted. And in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secrets unto the servants, the prophets. Okay. The Lord God will do how much? Nothing, but he reveals his secrets unto the servants, the prophets. And so throughout the Old Testament now, through the whole canon of the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is revealed as an active agent that gives, gives abilities, wisdom, strength, might, encouragement, comfort. All of those things are being provided, and even tongues are being provided by the Spirit of God throughout the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament is where uh, some people have questions. So we uh, know that the New Testament... Pardon me, in the New Testament where people don't, do not have questions, but we need to cover that ground anyway because it's important. 
because now what they're saying is something different. They don't believe that the Spirit of the Lord is a third person of the Godhead. They're thinking that he's a current or an essence like electricity. All right? In some places, they're so confused that they think that the Spirit of God comes upon people and causes them to bark like dogs and laugh uncontrollable. So there are all sorts of, of uh, strange ideas out there, but we need to stick to what is truth. All right? So Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Is that true? We know that John the Baptist said that the Spirit had impressed him to recognize the true Messiah when he would see the Spirit of the Lord come in the form of a dove upon the Messiah. So when Jesus came to be baptized, John testified that he saw the Spirit of God coming in the form of a dove and setting upon Christ. All right? And so then it says that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Ghost. Okay, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, Acts 10, verse 37, 38, pardon me, is again stating that Jesus was filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, uh, Simeon and Anna, likewise, a prophetess or prophet that were in the day of Christ, and in both of these cases, it says that the Holy Ghost had already spoken to them about the Messiah. So let's look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. And notice what it says there. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. Are you there? All right. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. You see that? So the Holy Ghost is not just upon Jesus, but the Holy Ghost actually worked uh, on people's lives. And in fact, it's interesting that when Nicodemus came to Jesus and, and Jesus began to speak about the Holy Spirit, it was obvious that Nicodemus was not conscious of the workings of the Spirit of God. So when Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was a religious man, he said, uh, you must be born again. Uh, he, he didn't understand that. He got irritated with Jesus and said, what do you mean? Must you go back into the mother's womb and come back out again? Now an intelligent man knows that's not possible, right? And Jesus said, aren't you a master in Israel? You don't understand these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, except the man be born again of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now it's interesting. At first Jesus said, Except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the second time he said, except the man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So there are two stages that have to take place. In order for you to enter, you first must see. It is the Spirit of God that enables you to have spiritual sight. It isn't something that you create by yourself. Okay? So, this, here Jesus is speaking to this master of Israel who is not cognizant, not aware that there's any such thing as the Holy Spirit. So then Jesus simply says the following. When he says, how can these things be? Then Jesus says to him, by the way, you can look at that in, in uh, John chapter 3, verse 8. John chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus says, the wind bloweth where it listeth, which means where it wants to. And you can hear the sound thereof, but you do not know from where it's coming and where it's going. So also is what? 
Everyone. Everyone who is what? Born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. Okay. So what is Jesus saying? You cannot see wind, can you? Yes or no? No. So how do you know he's, the wind is there? You know the wind is there by the evidences. I'm looking at that tree right now back over there and I know there's wind. Why do I know it's wind? Because the branches are doing what? The branches are moving. I can't see the wind, but I can see its effects. And that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. You cannot see the wind, but you can see its, its effects. Okay? So you don't understand the spiritual things? I'll give it to you in nature. And so he gave him a nature lesson to help him understand how the Spirit of God works. Okay, so Simeon and Annan are both filled with the Spirit of God. And then Jesus promises the people that he will send what? Another comforter. Now, he doesn't say, I'll send you a comforter. He said, I'll send you another comforter. When he says another, that means that it has to be the same as the one that was comforting. Do you hear what I said? When he said, I'll send you another, it means that there was already one. And who was that? It was Jesus. Jesus was comforting, and he knew he was going to be leaving the earth, and he said, I'll give you another comforter. All right? And then he underscored the work of that other comforter, what he would be doing, etc. And we'll get to that shortly. Okay? But we know that the promise of the Holy Ghost then was given and that it was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, correct? So we know that the Holy Spirit then was poured then in Acts chapter 2 and uh, verse 1 and 2 and verse 38 and Acts chapter 4 verse 31. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon the people and in this particular time he gave them the ability to speak in different languages. In what? Different languages. In fact, the Greek word is dialectos. What is it? And what word sounds like that in English? Dialect. Dialect. And what does that mean? Gibberish? No. No. What does it mean? It means something intelligible, understood, a language. All right? In fact, we also have the term dialogue, which means what? It means you communicate with one another. Okay, so, so the Spirit of the Lord was given to bring about a conversion in the hearts of those who were present. And the Bible says that when the Jews heard what Peter said, they were pricked to their hearts, and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the answer was, repent and be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Okay? In other words, if you do what we have done, then you'll get the same thing we got. Right? So, we know then that the Spirit of the Lord uh, ministered. Now, I was studying with a Joe Witness. Uh, I was teaching a young man, uh, Chad Cruiser. Or Chad, yeah, Cruz. No, Cruiser, yeah. yeah. And Chad uh, was one of my students. And as I was teaching him, we were in uh, New Mexico. Uh, he came across a Joe Witness lady that had been Joe Witness for 35 years. And so he said, I need your help, Pastor, with this lady. I said, okay, I'll go with you. So I went with him, and uh, we began to talk together. The lady, of course, had her usual Jehovah Witness arguments, but I didn't use the usual Jehovah Witnesses' comeback. I uh, 
asked her, I said, let's, let's go to a verse of scripture about the Spirit of God. I said, what is the Spirit? I didn't talk about Jesus. I said, what is the Spirit? She said, it's an essence or current like electricity. So I turned with, with her to the book of Acts. So in her own Bible, I said, let's look at the book of Acts chapter 10. Would you turn with me to chapter 10? And there in chapter 10, uh, Peter is having a dream. He's having what? A dream. a dream. And the dream was a nightmare. It was a what? Nightmare. It was a nightmare. Because in that dream, he saw unclean animals and he heard God saying, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And his response was, I've never eaten anything like that. I've been a vegetarian all my life. <laughs> so Peter basically had never eaten anything of that sort. And so I'll have to call you back. And so Peter had never had that experience. And he was wondering what this was all about. So after having three times, uh, Peter then is up on the rooftop and he gets hungry and falls asleep. And when he falls asleep, it's when he saw the vision. Now I want you to notice what it says, verse 19. Are you there? Chapter 10, verse 19. Well, Peter thought on the vision, who spoke to him? Spirit. The Spirit said unto him, Peter, three men seek thee. Arise therefore and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So I asked the lady, I said, who's speaking? And she said, I don't know. I said, well, read it again. So she read it again in her Bible, okay? And it says the same thing that our Bible says. And so it says, while Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him. So I said, what did the Spirit do? Well, she said, well, it says it said. Then I said, what would the Spirit say? Well, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, get thee down and go with them, down in nothing for. What's the next word I asked her? She said, I, for I what? I have sent them. And immediately she began to cry. And then she said, is that why I've been feeling uncomfortable all these years with these teachings? I said, yes. They have taught you that the spirit is an essence and a current. And therefore, when you have had convictions, you thought it was just harassment or guilt trip. But in reality, it's the voice of God who's been calling you all this time. And you have turned your ear against it because you didn't realize that the Spirit of God is a person. She said, what do I do? I said, repent. Give your heart to the Lord and accept that the Spirit of God is who he claims to be, a person. We knelt down and prayed. That night, he went, she went to the meeting and Chaz was preaching, Chad, and uh, I was out in the parking lot at the end and she came running up to me and showed me the decision card. She, she had received a decision card and she had checked off baptism. And she wanted me to see it, okay? And so, the Spirit of the Lord speaks. He what? He speaks. He ordered the disciple. He said, look, Peter, there are three men that are looking for you. Don't ask any questions. You just go with them because I'm the one that sent them. Now, what does that sound like? Does it sound like a current, like an essence, or like a person? Like a person, okay? Now, these are the texts in the New Testament that show 
I'm speaking about in the book of Acts, show all the, the different times that the Spirit of God told Paul, Paul, I want you to do this. Paul, I want you to do that. Oh, you can't do this. Oh, you can't do that. Don't go there, don't go there. Okay? You will see then that the Holy Ghost is working in the lives of people in the New Testament, just as he did in the Old Testament. And here are all these verses. Now, uh, the Holy Spirit then is given to those who what? Who obey it. So if you don't if you don't obey the voice of the Lord, you're not going to receive the Holy Spirit. You'll receive a different spirit. And you'll think that what's speaking to you is the Spirit of God, when in reality it is a different spirit. That's why there is a warning against the sin of, against who? The Holy Spirit. All right? The warning is there because in the last days, the, the, there will be people who will rise up and who will try to get rid of the Spirit of God by their teachings. And that's what's happening today. Amongst us, there are some Adventists who are now believing that the Spirit is not a third person of the Godhead. And they've even written a book, etc. But I want to warn you. What did I say? Warn. I want to warn you, just as Jesus warned, that there's one sin that's not forgiven, and that is the sin against the Holy Spirit. Okay. Very important. Now, let me give you a list of all that the Spirit actually does. We know that the gifts of the, of the Spirit are given by the Spirit. And there are three references in the New Testament that uh, mention the different gifts given by the Spirit of God. And of course, uh, Hebrews 2, 4 is referring, referring to the Spirit of God. But the other three are actually giving you a list. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 gives you a list of the different gifts. Uh, Romans chapter 12 gives you a list of the different gifts. And Ephesians chapter 4 gives you a list as well. So these are lists uh, explaining the manifestation of the Spirit and the gifts that the Spirit gives to different people. Okay? Now, let's consider the Spirit and what He is. Number one, He is not in an essence, affluence, etc. He is called God in Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. He comforts, which means he has to have the ability to, to sense when comforting is needed. You cannot comfort somebody if you don't know that they need comforting. Is that true? All right, so you have to have the ability to detect, right? Uh, which means that he has to have feelings. He has to have what? Feelings. feelings. He testifies, which means then that he tells that which he knows. He what? Tells that which he knows. He guides, which means he has to know direction. He has to know what? Direction. direction. You cannot guide unless you yourself know where you're going. Is that true? Yeah. yeah. I've come to some places and I ask, where's so-and-so? And they try to give me the, you know, the, I think it's over here. Thanks so much. I don't need what I think I need. Do you know exactly? Well, to be honest, you know, I don't know. Well, I prefer you tell me you don't know than say, I think it's over here. Give me a goose chase, right? All right. So and there are people who try to be helpful. Down south, they say, over the hill yonder. <laughs> well, you go over the hill yonder, you discover that there are several hills to go over yonder. 
All right, so he speaks. He what? He speaks. he speaks. And we already can see in the scriptures that he did speak to Peter. Peter. He also spoke to Paul. Uh, he spoke to David. He spoke to Samuel. Um, there are many, many people that the Spirit spoke to, okay? He commands. He what? Command. He commands. He gives power. He witnesses. He brings to our remembrance, which means that he has to have the ability to, to, re, to store information, correct? You cannot regurgitate that which you do not have. You have to have it in order to remember. And how grateful I am for memory, what do you say? Amen. You know, where would we be if we didn't have memory? We wouldn't even know what we're doing here right now. Right? All right, so uh, he, he also is referred to in the personal pronoun, he. Uh, there's some people who are teaching that the Spirit of God is a mother. They say the, God the Father, God the Son, so there must be a mother. I mean, you can't come to a biblical doctrine just by that kind of thinking. There's no such place that it calls the Spirit of God she. Because in the Greek and the Hebrew, the word she is there. In other words, there are words for women and there are words for men in the Bible. Do you understand? And so, uh, it's not that there was no, no word for she and therefore it was called he. It's clear that he, because the Bible says that the, the woman who was speaking to Jesus, she went, what is she, who? She. she went to the people in town and said, come and see the one who told me all the things I've ever done. Okay. So the scripture then says that the Spirit of God teaches, which means he has to have the ability to, to, to teach, which means he has to process information, know how to, how to deliver the information, etc. Uh, he reproves, which means he has to know what's wrong, what's right. He hears, which means he has to have the ability to, to collect. He shows, which means he can, he can uh, clear up things for people. He can be grieved, which means he has feelings again. He can be sinned against, which is uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit. He can be quenched from the heart. He makes intercession, which means that he is able to intercede for you and for me. And last, he proceeds from Christ, from God as Christ did. And so, we, uh, we, by that I'm saying, it says that, that God sent Christ. And it also said that he sent the Spirit of God. And so, uh, we can see from this list that this cannot uh, identify a, an essence or current. This identifies a, a being that feels, that thinks, that sees, that hears, that speaks, quantifies, qualifies, sanctifies. So this is not what some people think as an essence or current, all right? And so you can see then from the beginning from Genesis, you can trace all of the workings of the Spirit of God all the way up to uh, Revelation chapter 22. And the only reason why you and I can receive the Spirit of God is because of who? Because of Christ. Without the gift of Christ, none of us would have received the Spirit of God 
to work, work in us and lead us in the path of righteousness. You are privileged to receive the gift because of Christ. And the reason for, for the Spirit of God being given is to lead you back to Christ. So he, the Bible says, will testify of me. He will what? Testify. He will testify of me. Okay? So you can see then through the scriptures that the Spirit of God is there. You want to take a picture of that? I thought somebody wanted to take a picture of that. So you can see from the whole chart how you can cover every doctrine from Eden to so you can cover the subject of jewelry from Eden to Eden. You can cover the subject of death from Eden to Eden. You can cover all the subjects of, of diet from Eden to Eden. You can cover all these subjects from Eden to Eden. All right. So uh, we have 10 minutes. Actually, I'm supposed to go to 445, but I told uh, the pastor that I will finish at 430 because I need to turn the chairs around to get ready for the next meeting. So I'm going to give you another study. Are you ready? Or is your head spinning? You got a question? I do. Okay. Buttons, go ahead. <laughs> um, have, have you talked to the people who believe that the Holy Spirit is the omnipresence of Jesus? Have I talked to them? Yeah. I have not. Okay, because you know that's the new thing that's just been coming out? That's why I'm presenting this. Okay, because that's one where we've been going back and forth with them, and they have a couple of quotes. Which I'll talk you don't about. have to go back and forth. You just have to go forth. <laughs> they're the ones that are going back you need to go forward okay their belief their belief is not a new belief ben, uh, daniel mesa's belief is is comes from the time of the arianism uh, which was the arian movement uh, just uh, about the 300 years after christ that people did not believe in the spirit of god and so uh, they came up with different ideas of the Spirit, and uh, unfortunately, um, you're referring to, to, to that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't had an opportunity to talk to him, but when I do, um, I have a lot of ammunition to give to him. Yeah, I know he'd be open to it, because I know we've been trying to study it out with him. Um, so that's why I was wondering if... No, no, why don't you tell him, tell him, hey, I'll give you a little bit of advice. You, you should call your spiritual dad and talk to him. I will do that. Okay, thanks. All right. Let me go to another one. Uh, the three days and three nights. Now, some of you have been uh, challenged by that. In fact, the World War Church of God has, uh, has established this as a doctrine that Jesus was actually dead on Wednesday and he resurrected on Sabbath. And the argument is that it has to be three days and three nights, 72 hours. And in order for it to be 72 hours, um, uh, if it isn't 72 hours, then Jesus lied. And Jesus never lied, so it has to be 72 hours, okay? The problem with that teaching, and then, of course, I have a real close friend of mine that you know very well who wrote a little book on uh, Jesus in the heart of the earth, and he came up with a different interpretation about Jesus being in the heart of the earth on Thursday night when he was in Gethsemane and wrestled, and uh, I think you know who I'm talking about. All right. Well, even though he's a good friend of mine, uh, I'm going to have to show you that he was not correct. Okay. Let me, let me explain to you why, all right? The only text in the Bible that says three days and three nights is in the book of Matthew. For as Jonah was three days and three nights 
in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. All right? This is Ma Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. This is the only text. What did I say? This is the only text that mentions three days and three nights. Okay? All the other verses are in three days, after three days, the third day. Okay? So this is the only one that says three days and three nights. Do you make a doctrine on one verse or on many verses? Many verses, many verses okay? So the problem is that there's an, an, an attempt to try to explain this verse at the exclusion of the other verses. So you need to look at the other verses. Based upon this text, some insist on a what? 72-hour period, because three days and three nights is 72 hours, correct? So, let's consider this. For calculation purposes, it's necessary to have either a biblical what? Beginning, beginning point of tracking time or an ending point of tracking time, correct? You have to have either a beginning or tracking uh, or, an, or an ending point. So, there is no apparent beginning point of calculating, and I'm saying no apparent because... Uh, People say that uh, because it was a high Sabbath, then that the Passover actually took place earlier, and therefore Jesus had to resurrect on Sabbath. Okay, um, that, that's a point of contention. However, uh, because some argue that the day in which he died is Wednesday, others argue that it was on Thursday. All right, because it says, as Jonah was in the whale, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Okay, so my friend's argument, and I'm not mentioning his name, is that Thursday night was when Jesus was in the heart of the earth because he wrestled there in Gethsemane. Okay, but the heart of the earth has to do with burial, death, not struggling in Gethsemane. All right, so. Let's, let's consider what the Bible does reveal. Number one, the Bible reveals that the third day is usually, uh, or after three days, is usually the text that refer to what Jesus is talking about. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. Okay? So, it uses the third day, it uses after three days. All right? So let's, let's, or in three days, Christ died at the ninth hour. This is what the Bible reveals. When? Now, so that you understand this, and I hope you already do, but if you don't, the reason why it says the ninth hour is because in Israel, time was calculated from sunrise to sunset. And because Israel is near the equator, usually sunset is about six o'clock. Sunrise is about six o'clock. So they, they compute time from sunrise to sunset at 6 in the morning. So when they say the third hour, then what time is that? It'd be 9 o'clock in the morning. When they say the sixth hour, what do they mean? 12 o'clock. When they say the ninth hour, what is it? 3 o'clock in the afternoon, okay? And when they say the twelfth hour, then it is 6 o'clock. In fact, a long time, not too long ago, uh, the Jews, the rabbis were arguing if a Jew becomes an astronaut, which Sabbath does he keep? Well, it's an important issue, isn't it? If the Jew becomes an astronaut, which Sabbath will he keep? Well, they fought. Well, will he keep the Sabbath that he's right over where 
you know, where he's flying, that's a problem because the satellite's flying pretty fast, you understand? So, the conclusion, all Jews who become astronauts must keep Jerusalem Sabbath. So if they're flying up there, they have to find out what time it is in Jerusalem. And when it's six o'clock in the evening in Jerusalem, that's when they start keeping the Sabbath, irrespective of where they are on the planet, okay? So six o'clock. So when it mentions the third hour, the fourth hour, whatever, it's from six to six. You got that? So now, since Jesus died on the what hour? The ninth hour, he actually died about three o'clock in the afternoon, okay? And that's clear, it says, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was what? Darkness over all the earth until what? The ninth hour. So from noontime till three o'clock in the afternoon, the sun had not given its light, okay? And the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. So from 12 to three o'clock, there was darkness over Gethsemane, pardon me, over uh, Golgotha where Jesus would, had died, okay? Do you understand? All right, now, now we have a, a point. We know then that, that Jesus could not be in the heart of the earth until after the ninth hour, right, of the day. You got that clear? All right, so he died after the ninth hour. So whatever you compute, you have to put Jesus in the grave after the ninth hour. It cannot be in the third hour, it cannot be in the first hour, it cannot be during the nighttime, it has to be just after the ninth hour, which is right after three o'clock, okay? Is that clear? Then Christ died the ninth hour, it says when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and having said this, he gave up the ghost. So we know he died right after the Ninth hour. All right? Now, Luke 23 also uh, is important because in 23 it tells us that Jesus, when he died, Pilate uh, was asked for the body of Jesus by a man named Simon Serene. Okay? And Simon then took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone wherein never man before was laid. And that day was a preparation day. So we know then that Jesus died about the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock. And whatever time it took for Simon to go and beg the body of Jesus and get permission and then get his body off the cross and then wrap it in linen and take it to the tomb which was nearby, it must have been about five o'clock already. But what? Five o'clock, okay. So we know then that Jesus was in the tomb about five o'clock, 4.30, five o'clock, maybe 5.30. We know then that it was very close to the Sabbath because the ladies who had brought the spices anointments ran out of time because it says they went and kept the Sabbath going to the commandment, all right? So now, and the woman also which came with him followed after and beheld the sepulchre and the body, well, how his body was laid. He returned and prepared spices and ointments and rest of the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So from the time that Jesus died until the time that was Sabbath, six o'clock, all right, they had to go and buy the spices and all that. By the time they did all that and came back to see where Jesus had been placed, it was already close to the Sabbath. So they stopped 
and then went in rest of the Sabbath day. All right? Now, in Mark 15, 42, it says, Now when the evening was come, because it was a preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Sabbath. Okay? Now, Armstrong says that, that it was a, a high day, therefore it was not the, the Sabbath. Uh, but what's important here is that the word preparation, what word? Preparation. preparation uh, actually, in the Greek is paraskemon, and that is still the Greek word for Friday. Amen. Did you know that? Okay. So this word, the preparation day in Mark 15:33, in Greek is this word, which is a, still the same word that's used for Friday by the Greeks. Okay? So it's clear then that Jesus died on what day? Friday. On Friday. On what time? About 3 p.m. And how much time did it take for him to get off the cross and all that? We don't know, but we know it had to be within three hours because we knew then that the preparation uh, day was there and then when they finally came back with spices and ointments, they couldn't anoint the body of Jesus because the Sabbath had come, okay? All right, and let me quickly finish. He rose at the rising of the sun. So now we find out that not only did he die on Friday, but it says he rose when? He rose at the rising of the sun, what day? The first day, okay? Now, notice also it says, and uh, very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. Now, when Jesus was risen, early the first day of the week. So Jesus then came back to life just before sunrise. Just before what? Sunrise. sunrise. Okay. On what day? The first day. So we know then that he died about 3 o'clock. We know that he was buried on Friday. And we know that he rose on the first day of the week, just before sunrise, all right? Now, based on the four Gospels, then Jesus resurrected on the first day of the week. And by the way, in the Greek, it says the first of the Sabbath. You don't see that because the English doesn't say that. But in the Greek, they, uh, the Jews computated every day in re reference to the Sabbath. So there's no day that has any name except for the seventh day. The seventh is the only day that has a, a name, Sabbath. All the other days have the first of the Sabbath, the second of the Sabbath, the third of the Sabbath, the fourth of the Sabbath, the fifth of the Sabbath, the sixth of the Sabbath, and Sabbath, okay? Do you understand? So Jesus then rose on the first of the Sabbath, which means right after the Sabbath, okay? And there are all the texts. So to use 72 hours to compute uh, the, the, the whole thing, you have to begin when? On the ninth hour of the preparation day. But some argue that the preparation is Wednesday. If that is true, then 72 hours from four or five o'clock on that day would have Christ in the grave when? Wednesday afternoon and resurrecting on? Saturday at 3 p.m. All right? But since the Bible says the first day of the week, we know that Saturday is the seventh day of the week. So could that be correct? No. Okay. So then I'll give you a chart just to help you see it. All right? 
If you take Wednesday and have to, and you and you insist that they have to be seventy-two hours, then going seventy-two hours, okay, back, it comes to when? It comes to Saturday at four or five p.m. Okay, you see that? Which means then that Jesus, according to that teaching, seventy-two hours, it means that Jesus had to rise Saturday afternoon. Could that be correct? No. no. Because we see then that the Bible says that Jesus died at the ninth hour, and if you actually go back uh, nine at the, for the ninth hour, which uh, we added an hour or an hour and a half, you know, for, to five o'clock, uh, to give them the time to get the body from the cross to, to the tomb, then Jesus would have to be placed in the tomb sometime there. Okay, now, Let's, uh, let's look at Orisa uh, sometime there and die sometime in Wednesday afternoon. We know in both cases that's an error. All right. All right. Thursday, then, 72 hours calculation. If Thursday is utilized, then Christ would have had to be in the grave on when? Thursday, about 4 or 5 in the afternoon, and resurrect on when? Sunday, about 4 in the afternoon. Could that be correct? No. no. So the idea of Jesus in the heart of the earth Thursday night is not not valid. Okay? Did you get that? All right. So, here's the Thursday. So if you go from Thursday, and you have to stick to the ninth hour, correct? Because Jesus said he died in the ninth hour. You go from Thursday all the way to Sunday, then Jesus had to rise Sunday afternoon. And we know then that Christ could not have risen then. All right? So, apply the 72 hours from Sunday morning. If Sunday... 5.30 in the morning uh, it's utilized. In other words, if you stick to the reality that Jesus rose just before sunrise, which is about 5.30 in the morning, all right, and you go back, then you end up Thursday morning, Jesus being in the grave Thursday morning at 5 in the morning. So did Jesus die and get buried Sunday morning, uh, Thursday morning, pardon me? What's the answer? No, because he, he was not uh, dead Thursday morning, he, if you, if, if you stick to what is the ninth hour, then he had to die in the afternoon, not in the morning. You understand? Am I confusing you guys? All right. So, the three days and three nights then makes no sense. So what is the solution? The solution is simple. Uh, in Luke 24, verse 1, Luke 24, verse 1, it says, Now upon the first day of the week, early in the morning, they came unto the sepulchre, bringing the spices, and they had prepared with them with others, okay? So upon what day? The first day of the week, the ladies then came back with the spice of anointment, correct? But one day? The first day of the week. Now, notice then that Jesus meets two guys on the road to a mouse. Is that correct? And I want you to notice what it says. And behold, two of them went which day? Which is what day? The first day of the week. Okay, the same day they were going to the village and Jesus then met up with them and walked with them, okay? Now, they said to Jesus, we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel and besides all this, what does that say? Today is what? Ah, so now you're stuck. You cannot have any other day than the first day of the week as the third day. You see that? So which is the third day? Sunday. 
Therefore, no other day can fit. Because the Bible says this day is when it happened. And by the way, if you read before, the verses before, you'll see that they're saying how the, the leaders took him and they tortured him and they killed them, etc. And today is the third day since all these things happened. So they go through what happened in terms of him being killed, being buried, etc. Okay? But we believe that it was he. Okay? And today is the third day. So Sunday has to be the third day. You can't get around it. Nine o'clock of the ninth hour has to be the time of his death. Correct? You can't get around that. Correct? So now, he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead when? So who's speaking here? Jesus. Jesus. And what is he calling the third day? Sunday. So the disciples say today is the third day, and Jesus himself said today is the third day. So now there's no other way around it. Sunday is the third day. So what's the answer? In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene. So the ladies came just before sunrise. When did they come? Just before sunrise, okay? And uh, the angel answered and said unto them, Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Okay? So, the resurrection took place on the first day of the week, just before sunrise. Friday uh, is, uh, pardon me, the first day then is Sunday, which is called the third day, uh, just before sunrise. So the answer is found in an understanding of the Hebrew calculation of days, called what? Inclusive reckoning. What is it called? Inclusive, inclusive reckoning. What is inclusive reckoning? Quickly, because I promise these guys I'll be out of here and I'm still here. Okay. Apparently, the common usage in counting intervals of time was the inclusive reckoning, that is, counting the in incomplete days, years, etc., at the beginning and at the end of a period, if they were whole units. So, let me give you some examples. Inclusive reckoning. In Genesis 42, verse 17, the Bible says, And he put them all together into the ward, how long? Three days. And Joseph said unto them, the, What? This do and live, for I fear the Lord. Uh, God, if you be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye carry corn from for famine for your families. All right. So he said that they would be how long? Three days. All right. Now, and he said unto them, Come again unto me after what? Three days. And the people departed. All right. So what happens? So Jeroboam and all the people came to Reboam on the but wait a minute. Didn't he say do what? Come after what? The three days. So when did they come back? On the third day. So why did they come back on the third day? When they were told come after three days. If I tell you come after three days, when would you come back? Yeah, we come back on the fourth day, right? So why did the Jews come back on the third day? Because to the Jew, any part of the day was a day. Okay? So, if it was just one hour of the day, it's a, third, it's, it's a full day, all right? Now, uh, Esther. Esther said, Go gather together all the Jews to the present of Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, nor what? Day or night. So, if, 
If Esther told you, don't fast night or day for three days, what is that? How many hours would that be? 72 hours, right? Because she said night nor day. For how long? Three days, okay? So then it says, I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so I will go unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. All right? Now, notice what happens. And it came to pass on the what? Third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court before the king. Why did she go on the third day? She told him to fast three days, night and? But she's there on the third day. What happened? Did she get confused? All right. They understood. Today we have the same kind of thing. We have a, 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 the accounting system has inclusive uh, uh, in, uh, understanding in it. Uh, uh, for example, when you have a computer, a, a, an accounting year, when does it start? Hmm? A specific date. It starts at a specific date, right? What about a school year? When does it start? The school year actually covers how many years? Two years. Is that true? Yes or no? Yes. So if you start in August of 217, you end up in May of 218. That's how many years? That's two years. Is that true? Yes or no? Yes. So we have some of the same usage in English. The important thing is this, that what happened was simply this, that he was crucified and died on Friday. Day two, he rested on the Sabbath according to commandment. And day three, the first day of the week, he rose. Amen. So Jesus said on the third day, that's what he emphasized, and that's what he fulfilled. But most people misuse one verse to establish a whole denomination. And by the way, unfortunately, that whole denomination has crumbled and it's no longer the Worldwide Church of God. Okay? So, I trust that I've given you enough help in understanding some of these difficult verses, and I pray that by, your, by God's grace that you'll be true to the Word. Amen. True to what? True. To the Word. Every time I open it, it says the same thing. It doesn't change. Let's pray together. Loving God, thank you so much for your truth as it is in Jesus. We ask that you continue to help us to believe in your prophets that we will prosper. Help us to be stable in our faith in thee. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.